We're in the third Sunday of Advent. Thank you all for being with us, for joining us. Thank you, children, for uh, starting worship off with your singing. We've been spending these Sundays looking at what the Bible has to say about the second Advent. So as the, as the storyline of the Bible goes, it's presented to us, we have two Advents. The first where Jesus comes to be with us in humility as the Christ child uh, to come and uh, die for our sins and to be resurrected again and the promise of new life that comes with that. Uh, that's We look back on that first advent and we look forward to the second advent where Jesus comes again in glory to create for his people the new heavens and the new earth. And we sit in that tension with advent the first between the first advent and the second advent and what we're doing is spending these three or these four Sundays talking about this second advent what does the bible have to say about Jesus's return what when it will be is what we talked about last week uh, when is he coming back and the answer to that of course Jesus says several times we don't know so stay ready and then this one we're going to look at what his return will look like the manner of his return what does the Bible have to say about that? And for that, the most we're looking at a very, uh, a very graphic uh, depiction of what Jesus's return will look like. You'll find it in First Thessalonians chapter four, and uh, and it, what's interesting about this passage is it's also a passage that you'll hear read a lot or talked about a lot at Christian funerals because it talks a lot about the reason that we should persist in hope even in the face of death. Let's look together. This is 1, Corinthians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. Hear the word of the Lord. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, we will not proceed, those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Oh, Father, I pray uh, that you would be with us now, that um, a spirit of your son, Jesus Christ, would rest upon us, uh, that you would be at work in our hearts. As we hear these words, would you help us to understand why they are so hopeful to us? Uh, and I pray that you would help me to love these friends well, to um, be an encouragement to them, just as Paul was an encouragement to, to this young congregation, uh, that you would bless the words of my mouth and that let everything that I say uh, honor you. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So let me start by giving you a little backstory about this congregation. Uh, if you look in Acts chapter 17, you can actually read the story of this little church plant. Uh, Paul goes to the city of Thessalonica. Uh, Thessalonica is a prominent and prosperous city in northern Greece. It was a strategic city. It was, it was a part of the Roman Empire. 
and it sat at the intersection of uh, several uh, trade routes. And, uh, and Paul has Silas with him, and he does what he always does. He enters the city, and he goes straight to the Jewish synagogue. And uh, begins to reason with the people there. And uh, tells them about who Jesus is, and how he rose from the dead, uh, how he promises to come again. And it says several people were converted. Many people were converted. It said that... Uh, There were several Jews who were converted to Christ, many more Greek people, and several leading women were persuaded to follow Jesus. And so what what you read when you read that is the birth of a young church plant right there in the middle of the city. And I read those stories, and I'll tell you, they're just wonderful to read because you you, you can't help but imagine what it must have been like to be there. Uh, Maybe even just sit on the steps of the synagogue and listen to Paul reason with these people about who Jesus is and see their hearts open to the truth of Jesus and and hearts coming alive to faith in Jesus Christ. I just think it must have been beautiful. But for many people, it wasn't beautiful. They didn't like what Paul was up to. They didn't like what they were witnessing, seeing people coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And so he became... Paul became the target of, uh, of their derision, and, and, uh, and there were several people that actually built a mob and incited a riot. And uh, so after three short weeks that Paul was with this young church plant, Paul and Silas had to escape under the cover of night. The same people, <laughs> the same people that had converted to faith in Jesus Christ actually protected Paul and Silas and helped them escape the city under the cover of night. And so they were left. They were left. Paul only there with them for a few weeks. They were left to kind of journey together in this journey of faith alone. And so when Paul says, we don't want you to be informed, this is why. He's trying to answer questions for them that inevitably surface early in the walk of faith. And you can see that his goal is right there in that last verse. His goal is to encourage them. His goal in giving them these words about the second advent is to, is to encourage them. And so what I want to do is do two things. I want to talk about our need for this encouragement. First, why we are needy, why, why we are needy for encouragement. Why they are needy, why we are needy. It's a state of neediness we have. We need encouragement. We need this particular encouragement. And where we find it. Why we need encouragement, where we find it. Why do the Thessalonians need this encouragement, and why are we needy for encouragement? Well, it has to do with, uh, with the questions these Thessalonians are asking of Paul. When you look at this passage, if you read the whole letter, you're going to see two things. One is you're going to see that Paul is incredibly proud of who they have become, who they are. Uh, He loves them, and he is hearing reports about how they're doing. And he's very encouraging to them as as their faith has taken shape in their community life in the middle of their city. Uh, he, He is just rejoicing over who they are and who they're becoming. Uh, the other is that you can tell when you read this letter that there's been ongoing correspondence between this young Christian church plant in the middle of the city and Paul as he's journeying around, uh, either through messages sent through Timothy or through letters sent uh, to each other. You, there is ongoing correspondence, and Paul is answering questions that they're asking of him. And, uh, and it's clear that they have asked a lot of questions about the matter of, uh, of death. What happens at death? What, what, how do we understand life after death? What does the Christian faith have to say uh, 
about the matter of death? And, and I would just say that's a natural question to ask. Uh, that's, a, that's, a, that's, that's a natural question to ask. And they're asking this question during a time when the world that they live in have a lot of different, have various answers for them about how to think about that. A theocritus was a, a scholar and a poet of the day. He was one who said that, uh, that uh, hope is for the living. The dead have no hope. So when Paul offers this idea that we are a people who grieve, but we grieve with hope, he is actually saying something remarkable to them. He is saying that the Christian hope belongs, even when we think about something as difficult as death, that Christian hope belongs in that place. I wonder if they had ever heard anything like that ever before. They need this encouragement, and so do we. Uh, there are several different places that we, that we can go to find, to find answers about how to, how to deal with our own grief or how to think about death as well. In fact, Luc Ferry, he's a French atheist philosopher, he says this. He says the point of philosophy is to determine how to live in light of our impending death. He says that's the central challenge because what he's saying is that how we think about death or how we think about life after death is actually going to have a dramatic effect on how we live. They need an answer to this question and so do we. And and uh, we don't just need an answer. What we need is what Paul is giving here. He gives, he, he's, what he is trying to do is not just answer their questions, but he's actually trying to give them encouragement. Now, sometimes we think that the word encouragement simply means uh, making somebody feel better about themselves, right? Like that's, that's uh, it's not as bad, it's not as bad as you think it is. You know, like that, that's what encouragement is. But really the word encouragement literally means to endow someone with courage. It means to give them a reason to continue forward in life and in faith. And that is exactly what Paul is doing here. And he does this by pointing to historical events moving forward. Now, let me say, before I get into what Paul points at, there, there are a couple of different really prominent ways that, uh, that exist in our world and in our culture that we've probably grown up understanding for how we might process uh, the reality of death. There are two. There are two that are most common. There are several, but there are two that are most common. And the first is what I would just call a, a more stoic approach. Um, that, now, the stoics would believe, would, would agree that it is something that's terrible. And it, and it naturally brings anger and it brings sadness into us, and, and that grief is natural, and we would agree with that. But the difference, the difference actually is, is how we think about grief, because the Stoic would say that we need to be in control of our grief and not let our grief control us. That's kind of a simplistic way of understanding that, that we continue moving forward despite. And we've grown up hearing that or seeing that modeled before us. It's the way that we understand it. Uh, the other, and this is more recent, I would say, um, that, that, we have seen, that we have seen, I think, surfaced over the last 40 or 50 years, but I'm still trying to understand it. And I would just call it a more naturalist understanding of death. And that is to say that it is, not, it is just something that's natural. Um, it is not something that we can control, and it's not something that we should essentially avoid. It, we should have no fear of it. Uh, some of you... Um, 
have seen the show Yellowstone. And you would think Yellowstone would be a place where you'd see like more stoic philosophy, but it's this neo-Western drama that's been pretty popular. And I'm not recommending it. All I'm saying is I've watched it, okay? So, um, but uh, uh, it's a neo-Western drama that really focuses on a lot of things, but it's, um, it focuses on the life of cattle ranchers. I mean, it's this big cattle ranching thing that's going on. And, uh, and it's always talking about how life and death interact with each other. It's always actually saying, it's making this point often, that death is actually necessary to produce more life. And that it's not something that, that, uh, that should be avoided. But it was most clear, it is most clear in the story of uh, one, uh, one of their cowboys, a guy named Emmett Walsh. He's an old guy. They called him a true cowboy. Um, he was somebody who belonged, who loved the work. And he spent his day on a long cattle drive. The, um, the landscapes were beautiful. You know, you see them doing their work. It's just incredible. But he's also very old. And when they lay down under the stars at night, he lays his head back on the saddle and he, and, uh, and he doesn't wake up. Now, here's the response. When the main character is giving the news of this man's death to his daughter, this is the way he says it. He says... He didn't wake up. He just died on the trail like every cowboy dreams of. Life ends. That's part of it. His end of good, and I refuse to be sad about it. Now, I don't know. Some of you might be able to correct me on this. But I don't know if there ever has been a time in history when that was the take. Like, even the Stoics understand that, it, that this is something to be angry about, that this is something to be sad about, okay? Um, but the idea that life ends, that's part of it, I refuse to be sad about it. What strikes me about this is that often every single philosophy that you come across, especially the two most common that I see, is that I don't see any point of hope in it. Uh, I actually, I don't see anything that you could look at and say, this gives me courage, But instead, what Paul is doing is he is saying there is actually, for the Christian, there is reason, there is profound reason that we are given as those who belong to Jesus Christ by faith to have courage even in the face of some of our darkest struggles. Where does he, what does he point to? Where does he point us where we could find this kind of encouragement? When you look at this, what you see is that he sinks down two different anchor points for us to hang our hope on. So I want you to imagine this. I want you to imagine a web. I want you to imagine a web that has two different anchor points with strings run across it, okay? Strings of promise on which we can hang our hope on. And the first is something that happened in the past. The first thing he notes is... The resurrection. These are historical events. The first thing that Paul points to is the resurrection of Jesus. Verse 14. For since Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. That's the promise. That's the, that's the, uh, the acknowledgement of the historical reality of the resurrection and, what, and, and all that it means. For those who belong to Jesus by faith. He is, and that, now notice a couple things in that verse there. The first is that he actually changed the word for death altogether. He changed it. 
What did he call it? He called it sleep. He does this twice in this text we just read. He'll do it again in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And he will do it four more times in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Where he is talking about what? He is talking about Jesus' resurrection. And all that it means for his people. What Paul is saying is that this anchor point, this historical event that happened in the past, fundamentally changes the way that we think about death. Do you understand how profound that is? I I actually haven't found a system, a faith system, or a religious philosophy that actually sought to to help us redefine how we would understand those things. And And Jesus, what Paul is telling us, is that by nature of our faith through Christ, because we are bound to him through faith, we are united to him, and that just as Jesus died and rose again, so do Jesus' people rise again. That's anchor point number one. Years ago, I remember I was in seminary. I got a text. A friend of mine, um, he was an older guy. He had taught me a lot about the faith. He had lived out the faith before me, lived in a different city at the time, was having health issues, and he was in the hospital. And uh, I couldn't go to be with him. I was, I was taking classes. I couldn't leave town to go be with him, but I kept hearing that this was very serious. He was in the hospital. And uh, I remember the text later. We were all praying for him. The text came in later that he was being discharged and was actually going home. And uh, it wasn't until a year or two later that I got a chance to sit with him and hear about that experience. And uh, what he told me, Uh, I'll never forget. He said, you know, when you're laying there on that bed, I I was thinking about my wife, and I was thinking about my kids, and I wanted to make sure that they were were well taken care of. Um, And I was very sad about this, but, you know, I just didn't, I just, I just wasn't scared, is what he said. He said he was sad, but he wasn't scared. He said, I was, I, I knew that Jesus had risen from the dead, and I knew the promises that he made to me. What was he doing? He was looking back at anchor point number one. It's anchor point number one. Here's anchor point number two. The thing that we're talking about now in this season. Paul moves from the resurrection to now begin talking about the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now, it occurs to me that sometimes we can look at texts like this and think that they're more symbolic than real. Like that, 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 uh, that the text doesn't actually mean what it says. Sometimes we can read texts like that. But a plain reading of this says Paul intends none of that. Paul is actually giving concrete statements about what it will look like. He gives us things that we will see and he gives us things that we will hear. When Jesus comes back to be with us, this, he, he is describing this as a future reality uh, of something that actually will happen. This is not an abstract moment in time, but he's giving us concrete things to hang our hopes on, to hold on to, that these things will happen. There are things we will see, and there are things that we will hear. Uh, first, what will we see? Well, he names, or sorry, what will we hear? Well, he names uh, three things. He describes a cry of command, 
the voice of an archangel, and he says that trumpets will sound. Now, what, what are all those things? What do they mean? Well, in the Old Testament, there are several different places where trumpets are used to announce that God's presence had come to be with us. Exodus 19, when uh, the Lord descends on Mount Sinai and meets with Moses, all of the people heard a trumpet blast. It's that kind of, you, you'll see stories like that running all throughout the Old Testament. Uh, the voice of the archangel, now, I, you know, I don't know, I don't know, I've never talked to an angel that I know of. Uh, the only archangel that is named in the Bible is Michael. Maybe it's going to be him speaking. Walt Whitman talks about the barbaric yop. This is grand announcement that says, I'm here. I tend to wonder if maybe that's what, that, that's what this text is describing. And then it tells us that the Lord himself will speak, that, he, that he'll cry out with a cry of command. Uh, I had some fun earlier this week talking with a friend of mine about what Jesus will say when we hear this cry of command. And my friend thinks he's gonna hear, we're gonna hear Jesus say the word arise. That's what, he, that's what he speculates. That's a little theological imagination for you. But he thinks that's what Jesus is gonna say. Why? Well, he thinks that he might, we might say, uh, hear that because of what we, not just what we will hear, but what we will see. I mean, what does he describe about what we will see when Jesus comes back to be with us? He says two things. He says, the Lord will descend out of the heavens, so we will see him face to face. And that him, what we know by faith, we will know by sight. That's what's being described here. And he says, the dead will rise. What an amazing claim to make. And it's a claim that Jesus made throughout his ministry. In John chapter 5, Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. That's the claim. That is the claim of Christianity is the resurrection. What happens next? He says, and then we who are alive, now he's talking about, he's talking about those who are alive when Jesus Christ comes back, when that moment of time comes. Um, will be caught up together with them in the clouds. So there's this reunion of God's people, of Jesus' people with each other, and then there's this meeting that happens in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Now, there's a lot going on here. Uh, let me, uh, a few things that are going on. When, um, <clears throat> when he says the word cloud, uh, the, the cloud is often a representation of the very presence of God. When the people of God were going through the wilderness, God led them, right? Uh, when God descended in Exodus 19, there was a glory cloud there. When they built the temple as God called them to, it said God's presence went into the temple in the form of a cloud. When Jesus was transfigured on the top of the mountain, the, 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 there, were cl- there was a glory cloud there. That's the description, that we will meet with Jesus in God's very presence. That's the cloud. And then it makes, and then it makes the point that we're going to meet them in the air. Now, that, that's, that's also a very important point. Uh, because in the air was thought to be the, the residence of Satan and his demons. And so the idea, like in Ephesians 2, Paul calls 
Satan, the prince of the power of the air. So what is being proposed here is there's this grand reunion, this party, this celebration that happens where the dead are made alive again, Christ's people are all brought back together with each other and meet with Jesus, the one that we long for, in the place of his enemy's backyard. This ultimate celebration where it, where it is... It is said, you thought this was your home. This is not your home anymore. You do not belong here. I know I'm not the only one uh, here that is a uh, UVA fan. And uh, there are a few of you in this room. And I want you to know if you're not, that's okay. And I'm really happy for you. Um, I'm not trying to convert you. I wouldn't wish that on anybody. Uh, But you can show us some sympathy during the football season. Uh, A few weeks ago, something happened, and and there's a little, a bit of controversy about this. We took our annual shellacking from our arch rival, uh, Virginia Tech, and uh, and boy, when that happens, you just hear about it from all your Virginia Tech friends and all that. But anyway, after the game, it was an ugly, ugly game. After the game, uh, the stands had all cleared out. The the football team actually. The Virginia Tech football team actually left the left their locker room and went out into the center of UVA's like the 50-yard line and and like celebrated and took a picture on top of the Virginia logo like and it seems some people took exception to that because um, the the sprinkler system suddenly went off you know like. <laughs> And there's some concerts. Some people think that the uh, the groundskeepers saw it and like hit a switch. Other people, they all said no, it's on a timer. But we all know what really happened. There's going to be a celebration. There's going to be an ousting. There's going to be a grand reunion happening. And there, this this whole thing declares that the role of death, the power of death. The rule of evil will end completely forever. It will always be over. That's the promise of the second coming. New life. New heavens and new earth. Think Psalm 23. He prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. And then finally that word to meet the Lord is a word that's most often used when greeting someone to escort somebody back into a place. This isn't just a meeting, okay? This is not just a meeting where we're carried away somewhere else. But that word to meet is actually used when uh, like a dignitary is coming to visit a city and the town officials would go out to greet them and then escort them back into the city. That's the idea. You see it used several times in the Bible that way. Uh, uh, you know, some, this happened the other day where somebody was coming over to our house for dinner and we saw them drive up. We went out to see them and then we walked back into the house with them. That's the idea. It shows that, you know, we were excited they were here. We were looking forward. We were longing for their arrival. In Matthew 25, Jesus tells the story of the bridegroom and the virgins. And it says the virgins went out to meet the bridegroom and then they walked back into the feast together. And that's the picture that's given here. But, and all that's beautiful. But Paul goes further to say that this is 
not some temporary state because all of this results in verse 17. We will always be with the Lord. That he is establishing something permanent in the new heavens and the new earth. That's the promise. Anchor point number one, resurrection. New life in him. Life after death in him. Anchor point number two, the promise of the new heavens and the new earth where we are with each other in glory. We see Jesus face to face and we will always be with the Lord. That's what Paul offers as this, as what encourages us and gives us courage to continue living in faith. He says, these are the two things that hold, that, that anchor our hope, that string up all the promises given to us that hold us in hope. This is what he gives us. And we need both. We need both. Let me ask you, does that encourage you? That's your future. He's saying that's going to happen. This is not symbolism. This is not an abstract moment. He says, if you belong to Christ, this is your future. We together will always be with the Lord. Let me close this way. Andrew Peterson. um, (laughs) Andrew Peterson writes a, uh, uh, writes, wrote a few albums, Resurrection Letters, talking about Jesus' resurrection. But if you actually look at his songs, you'll find that he's often always talking about He's often talking about the second coming also in his songs. Like they're emphasizing the truth of the resurrection, but he seems to always be moving in the direction of talking about Jesus' second coming. And he has this beautiful song called Remember Me. He's quoting the thief on the cross who is next to Jesus when Jesus uh, was being crucified. And he says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Remember me. Remember me. And then he begins, it's like he's talking about this crucifixion and resurrection and begins to talk about the truth of the second coming, how they both, he kind of moves uh, from one to the other. And this is what he has to say about it. He says, before our joy sprang from the womb, the first advent, you saw a day that's coming soon when the sun will stand on the mount again with an army of angels at his command and up from the earth, the dead will rise like spring trees robed in petals of white, singing the songs of the radiant pride, and we will always be, always be, always be with the Lord. That's the encouragement that's given to you as those who belong to Jesus by faith, the promise that he will come again. Jesus died, Jesus rose again, Jesus will come again. And we will always be with the Lord. Amen. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Oh, Jesus, hold us in hope. Strengthen us. Encourage our spirits. And help us. As we labor in faith. Just as you helped this congregation that went before us, I pray that you would help us that you would encourage us as we think of these things, I ask. In Jesus' name, amen.